today's content is adapted from material originally given as a lecture for the Theology of Peace and Justice course run by the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice. The IRPJ hosts a fully online certificate that's accredited by St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada. They are open for applications now. Consider this a plug. The courses in Religion, Peace and Justice focus on the inner transformation of a peacemaker, contemplative peacemaking, theology of peace and justice, peace and violence in both the Old and New Testaments, practical non-violence and peace-building skills, and the factor of religion in peace and conflict. The material is taught by Dr. Andrew Klager and Brad Jerzak, along with a number of other friends of Tenth Theology, including Shane Claiborne, Pete Enns, Brian Zand, and future friends such as C.C. Jones-Davis, Cherith B. Nordling, Jonathan Martin, and many others. Their lineup is truly fantastic. Do check them out. The application deadline for the certificate program for this upcoming academic year is the 15th of August. More info can be found at irpj.org certificate and irpj.org graduate degrees. In any case, I will put all the contact information into the show notes. Thanks to the good folks at the IRPJ for letting us re-release this material. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Jesus tells his story in the Good Samaritan parable of the Samaritan, the hated foreigner, who is the good neighbor, over and against the Levite and the priest who shared the the man in the ditch, the Jewish man in the ditch, shares the Levite and the priest's nationality, language, hopes, fears, dreams, inherited traditions, all that. They are co-nationalists. They are compatriots. And the Levite and the priest are not the good neighbor. The good neighbor is the one who doesn't share any of those markers of national allegiance and yet sees the need and does something about it. And this is agape love. This is unself-interested love. Where passionate love is like for like, agape love is unlike for unlike. It's the form of love that loves another even if there's nothing in common or even if it or even if there is something in common that's not why they love if that makes sense so you don't love your neighbor because your neighbor shares your nationality even if she does share your nationality you love your neighbor because your neighbor is your neighbor and your neighbor might not share any of the things your neighbor my neighbor right now who i'm I can hear mowing the lawn. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear her mowing the lawn. She doesn't share my skin color. She doesn't share my football team. She doesn't share my religion. She doesn't speak with the same accent, Canadian accent that I speak with. She doesn't meet any of the nationalist characteristics that tell me that she is someone who looks like me and sounds like me as much as possible. But guess what? She is my neighbor. And I'm supposed to love her. This is what Jesus says. And you can't love a neighbor using like for like passion. Because it will break down eventually. 
It will become self-interested. It's based on a self-interest. You can only love your neighbor through agape. Un, Unself-interest, unlike for unlike. And where the divine comes in is because this is the only way God loves humans. Because there is nothing like humans and God. If God exists and if God loves humans, if God is love, then that love has to be agape. Because it is an unlike for unlike form of love. It is an unself-interested love. God gets nothing out of it. God does not need humans. But God loves humans. God's identity is not affirmed and shored up and reflected back to God because of how many humans are shouting God's name in a worship service. The love of God and the love for God, the human's love for God also is unlike for unlike. So this is where Soren Kierkegaard gives us a very useful, I think, tool for looking at what kind of love does nation love or nationalism require? When you say love of country or love of nation, it, the kind of love it requires is passionate love. The love of the like for like, which is always trying to group together with people who share as much as possible with the one who loves. And to do that is a constant exclusion. It's a constant setting up of barriers. It's a constantly finding ways to not have to count the people who don't share that narrative, who don't share your like for like. And this kind of love, the nationalist love, pretends to be wide ranging and large and broad and unifying. But in reality, it is exclusionary and constantly ever tightening into smaller and smaller, harder circles, hard knots of self-interested people, bristling trying to exclude as many people as possible from within their group. And this is, in fact, what we see all the time. All patriotic and nationalistic groups do this. They're fissiprists, they're fighting, they're infighting, they all do this. And likewise, any large groups, it doesn't have to be the nationalist patriots. Any group of, uh, you know, we, we watch how the, the left-wing communist parties just absolutely infighting rips them apart uh, and they weren't overtly nationalist but they were definitely forming themselves on like for like principles and so any group that is trying to form itself to form a bond based on how much its members share with each other is a group that is in fact bound to collapse under its own selfish individualistic weight and Kierkegaard knew this and Augustine called it unjust. Kierkegaard called it unloving. Only agape love is going to form actual social friendships, actual bonds between others, which is neighbor love. Rather than nation love, we, rather than nationhood, we turn to neighborhoods and we try and define our gatherings together based not on the national story, but perhaps on something less sexy, less powerful, less, it's not going to get your heart racing. The neighborhood, the groups of people who are gathered together by proximity, the groups of people who are gathered together by shared need. And this is the forms of connection that lead to real society, 
even though it's not as exciting as the patriotic story. A very useful person to talk about here is William Kavanaugh. William Kavanaugh uh, is a Roman Catholic political and sociological theologian living in the United States. And here, the migrations of the holy is another idea that I want to talk about when it comes to justice and nationalism. Kavanaugh's thesis is that what one sees, the rise of the nation as, the, as a body that is claiming our affections, the rise of the nation state. Think of Benedict Anderson and his stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, these imagined communities. This imagined community, the story of the nation state is a story that we watch growing bigger and bigger. It's, it's accumulated more into itself, a bit like the blob, the old monster movie of the blob that just absorbs things and gets bigger and bigger as it grows. And he sees the nation state, Kavanaugh, as a blob, which began life. So if you notice, you know, under Augustine's era and in the New Testament, the national story was less strong. People definitely identified according to groups of like for like. They definitely grouped according to we must preserve resources for those who look like us and sound like us as much as possible. But the language was not of patriotism. It was of family identity or uh, a tribal allegiance or ethnic affiliation. As history progressed, and in fact, it was more around the time of the Reformation, we start to see that the national story starts to grow and that one's national affiliation becomes more and more important in the communal discourse. And uh, uh, Kavanaugh will link this to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which of course the word Protestant didn't come from Martin Luther. It wasn't Martin Luther, the theologian protesting against the Roman Catholic doctrine of indulgences. That wasn't his protest, which gave rise to the name Protestant. It was German princes protesting against the overarching empire. The a European system of empire was locking the German fiefdoms and little sovereign states into itself. And these German princes saw in the Protestant theological reformation, a vehicle for the achieving the kind of liberty and sovereignty that they were chafing or wanted, and they were chafing under overarching empire dominance. And the German princes were patrons to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a theological stalwart to the German princes. And these two things went hand in hand. And what we're seeing is the rise of sovereignty. Sovereignty was an idea, it's a theological idea that only God is sovereign. But in the Reformation era, we start to see that groups of people organized under a prince, geographically, through what we would now start to recognize as the rise of the state or the small state or the nation state, people identified around their ruler in one region of land started to adopt the word sovereignty for themselves. 
So the theological concept is taken from the divine and it is now applied to the prince and his people. And that the sovereign is the one that provides the laws. And importantly, the sovereign is the one that decides the religion for his people. And it was usually almost always a he. So here we start to see what William Kavanaugh talks about as a migration of the holy. How the, the growing importance of the nation state starts to attract for itself feelings and affections and acts of worship or words of worship that normally applied to the God now apply to the prince that used to apply to the church have migrated now to the state. And he traces this all the way through historically, um, through the rise of the nation state, through the various wars and treaties. And we start to see how the state accumulates and grows in stature and, and draws into itself functions and roles that normally would have applied to many different little groups. So under medieval society, it was a complex ever complex community of people. You had guilds which would run the hospitals or the uh, iron workers or the pipe layers or the bricklayers. You had guilds, you had apprentices, you had church, you had hospital, you had university, you had family, you had nobles and fiefdoms, you had kings and princes and empires and popes. You had a whole lot of people vying for your affection and affiliation. And part of the society, part of your job was to negotiate all those different complex spaces. And you had to weigh different affiliations up against each other. But what you start to see with this migration of the holy is that over time, the nation itself grows to envelop all those things. So nations now start to control the hospitals. The nation state starts to provide for the bricklaying and the road building and the military, and the education, and the religion. The nation state swallows up all the other interlocking, interweaving circles of affiliation so that all we're left with is one big empty circle called the sovereign state, which does everything. And what we find in the human psyche is a loss of affiliation or a, a, a loss of allegiant groups so rather than having to live in a complex space where different groups are jostling with each other and having to compromise and learn to be together you now have individuals rattling around in one big sovereign state which basically does everything and the individual's allegiance is to that state and that state alone and it's an impoverishment of allegiance and it's a, a simplifying of a, of a of an area that should be complex and partly this is a, a migration of the holy because the state is taking over what formerly was considered sacred within these other circles a good example which william kavanaugh uses is the one of violence for example this is key violence is essentially the reason that we have nation states they're born from violence they're there to protect against violence and they're the ones that wage the violence against others nation states are when it really comes down to it a, uh, a resource accumulating body 
for the promulgation of war. And what we have is the change in the justification of war. So today you can ask anybody, I've done this, I go into groups, I've done this in uh, the United States. You ask a group of Christians, I've done this in a Christian university. Um, you ask everybody, all right, who, who's a self-professed Christian? They all raise their hands. How many of you think it's reasonable to kill a human being in, de, in the name of your church? No one raises their hands. How many of you support the troops? Everyone raises their hands. And what someone like a William Kavanaugh will do, he'll look at that and he'll say, you see, what we've got here is the justification of life and death. It's, the violence hasn't changed. There's violence still. People are killing each other all the time. But what's changed is what's considered, who allows it to be reasonable? What's changed is who is claiming what's reasonable to kill and when. And we think, we naturally instinctively think that it's reasonable to kill human beings in the name of your country. And it's not reasonable to kill a human being in the name of your religion. Now, I definitely don't think that we should be killing human beings in the name of our religion. But I, that's, that's not my point. My point is to look at that migration of who gets to decide. And we've invested it now in the state. The story that we tell ourselves about ourselves has evolved and grown to the point where the state gets to decide. The state is sovereign. The state chooses what is holy and what is not. The state chooses what is reasonable and what is not. The state chooses what is sacred and what is not. What is allowed to be touched and what it should be set apart. And this is the thing that William Kavanaugh will point out again and again, that his, his thesis is partly one of, one of the things he wants to do is he says, we need to sit, complexify space. We need to take back or at least be aware of the, uh, the colonization of our imaginations. Our imaginations have been captured, colonized by the state. The nation story, the story that your nation is the ground of your identity and that it's the meaning and purpose of your destiny is an act of colonization. It has simplified a life that should be much more complex. There are more than one body or groups of people who have claimed to your allegiance. There is more than one type of person that needs your attention. And the national story simplifies it to the point of abstraction. And what is more, then gets to tell you that you're allowed to kill some of those other people who don't share your national story. Or if your very weak allegiance to your Christian church means that you should not kill your enemies, the state gets to overrule that church. And the state gets to decide who is worthy of being killed or not. And then the ultimate weapon to hit you with is you're unpatriotic. You're against the state if you show allegiance to any group higher than the state. And this is seen as the ultimate evil. And we even use language like ultimate. Soldiers pay the ultimate sacrifice. States are sovereign. These are all theological terms. 
that have been migrated from the realm of the divine, the realm of the holy, and they've been migrated into the realm of the story that people tell themselves about themselves in a like-for-like, self-love principle. It is fundamentally unjust because the God is not getting what the God deserves. The God is not getting what is owed to him. And furthermore, people are not getting what are owed to them. Anyone who doesn't fit the story is excluded. Anyone who doesn't meet the needs of the nation or is seen to contribute to the nation is ground down or dehumanized or silenced. They are not getting what they are owed as people who have the image of God in them. A useful and final name that I want to give us is Sarah Coakley. Sarah Coakley is a Roman, uh, she's not Roman Catholic, she's a Cambridge theologian. She's an Anglican theologian and a priest working in Cambridge in England. Uh, her book, Powers and Submissions, absolute brilliant book. But the one, the chapter that I'm particularly interested in is called Kenosis and Subversion. So the book is Powers and Submissions and the book is, chapter is Kenosis and Subversion. And I think that Sarah Coakley, she is not being specifically a political theologian when she's writing her piece, by the way, and she's not directly attacking nationalism. But what she offers us is one of the very useful, one of the best tools I've yet found for how to orient ourselves away from a mind colonized by the expansion of the national, the national story in our lives. This is a story I've been trying to tell of a group of people who are gathering more for themselves than they're owed, who are excluding and pushing out people, who are silencing voices. It's a story of uh, a bully expanding his ego into a room to fill the space. And the national stories that we have are stories of different nations jostling for position, vying over limited resources, killing each other over land and money and whatever resources you want. This is the story of trying to fill the space and make sure there's no one sharing that space with you. And if you find someone who does share that space that doesn't match your story, then you are legitimate and justified in killing them. So Sarah Coakley is very useful here. She is reflecting on kenosis. Kenosis is the, one of the oldest and deepest images we have of Jesus. It comes from the hymn in Philippians 2, where the Apostle Paul is writing in the book of Philippians to a church group that is in disarray and is competing in, with each other. In fact, there's two uh, leaders, two women, Eudike and Syntyche, are arguing and fighting, and they seem to be very powerful figures in this church. And he's pleading with them to consider each other better than themselves to not divide into factions, to not create groups which are then fighting with each other. And part of the conflict resolution teaching of the book of Philippians is this appeal to an ancient hymn. And Paul is not writing the hymn in Philippians 2. He is quoting a hymn that was written 
before he wrote his letter. So this hymn, because Paul's writings are the earliest Christian writings we have, this hymn is arguably the earliest thing that we have any Christian writing ever. Which, by the way, is well within living memory of Jesus, a hymn that would have been written in the 40s. And in this hymn, we have Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing or he emptied himself and became like a servant. And then the hymn goes on to say that he was raised up and at his feet, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I want to specifically look at this word emptied himself, which is the one that Sarah Coakley is most interested in. There's a lot of politics in this hymn. Let's have a look at some of the lines before we get to kenosis, emptied himself. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word equal to God is isotheo. It's a Greek phrase, and it's a phrase that this isn't a hymn describing what it's like for the Trinity to become a human, for God to give off God's power and to become a, a lowly human being. This is not what this hymn is about. Isotheo, equality with God, was a political phrase that was ascribed to the emperor. Emperors were considered equal to God. And if you wanted to become an emperor, you would throw your hat into the ring. You would say, I am Isotheo. I am equal to God. I'm going to go for the job of Caesar. I want to be the most powerful person in the world. And if you think of the Roman political imagination, the more powerful a human you were, the more of a little God you were. So you are Isotheo. And this hymn says, Jesus was Isotheo. He was a powerful person who had claims to kingship, king of the Jews, king of the world. But he did not consider his Isotheo a matter for grasping or using to his own advantage. And the word there is harpagmon which has the uh, where it has a kind of a grasping image. Again, there's a political element to it, which is the idea that you are gathering together your power base. When you practice harpegmon, you are gathering together all your uh, supporters. You're gathering other people's will and you are gathering it under your will to subsume it and then use it to your own advantage. It's a, a gathering, collecting and focusing action, harpegmon. A good example would be if you've ever been asked to, to sign a petition. And if somebody says, We're so, can you add your name to this list? Because if we get enough names, then the government will have to take us seriously and we'll get our agenda through the system. That's Harpagmon. Jesus was ruler of the world, but he did not consider being a powerful human being a matter for gathering other people's power and subsuming it under his will to use to his own advantage. Instead, it said, he emptied himself. And the word here is kenosis. And some of your English translations will say he made himself nothing. But I don't like that one. And neither does Sarah Coakley. And she's a professor at Cambridge, so she knows better than me. So let's go with her. Sarah Coakley and others say a better way of thinking of kenosis has to do with 
emptying rather than become nothing. Because this isn't about becoming a cringing worm or some sort of doormat. When you practice kenosis, you're putting a limit on your will to make space for other wills. I mentioned before how the nationalist story is essentially like expanding your, one's ego or the nation's ego to fill the space, to exclude and push out any other voices. It's under William Kavanaugh's story, it's the story of one thing growing so big that there's no room for any other allegiances or groups within it. And here, the opposite of kenosis. Kenosis is to put a limit on yourself to make space for other selves. An image might be of water flowing to fill a bathtub. We all know that water flows to fill the space. So if you pour the water, it will naturally flow and fill the tub. But what if the water could choose not to fill itself? What if itself emptied? What if it stopped halfway through? And this is the vision here from a personal point of view of kenosis, where you put a limit, you practice the, the uh, in fact, it's not being a cringing worm, it's self-control. It's one of the fruits of the spirit. You control yourself. You don't let your ego flow to fill the space. You don't bulldoze over everyone's voice and will in the room. You find a way to say what you want, and then you allow others to come forward to meet you. And then the next verse here is that Jesus became like a servant. And this isn't because Jesus is servile. This isn't an elevation of being a servile doormat. A servant exists for the will of someone else. That is his job description. And Jesus, we are being told, was a ruler, but he used his power not as a way to gather up and subsume others' power to get what he wants in a domination way. Instead, he put a limit on his power and his will in order to make space and room for other people's will. Or, as we might say in the Gospels, not my will, but yours be done. The way that Jesus expanded the spaces he was in to in encompass and bring up other people is one of the most important political things that Jesus did. He was constantly creating humans where before there were none. He gives women who have been with menstrual bleeding for 12 years, he gives them a voice and a name and a place. He calls them daughter and he gives them power. He takes Samaritan women who are at the well and gives them a voice and a role. He takes followers who are tax collectors, race traitors, and he turns them into leaders and servants of all. Jesus is constantly creating human beings where everyone around would have seen a less than human no one. And he does this by creating what Sarah Cookley calls gentle space making. It's a practice of creating space where there's no domination. And I think that this is a really useful, the practice of gentle space making is the last 
idea I want to leave you with. Not that it's a critique of nationalism, but that it offers an alternative orientation and way of being in this world. Augustine helps us think about justice as everyone getting what is owed. Benedict Anderson helps us think about a nation as an imagined community, a story that we all tell about ourselves and then buy into, and a story that by definition is false, is a myth, and will exclude lots of other stories. Kierkegaard tells us that this nation can only rely on self love, a monstrous self-love, which ultimately won't lead to the society that it claims it wants. Only the love of unlike for unlike, of unself-interested love, will be able to lead to real community and real connection between neighbours. Only that love will start to identify real human beings in front of us, even when they don't match our stories. This is moving towards the sort of justice that Augustine is talking about. William Cavanaugh reminds us that the national story has usurped and stolen a lot of the things that rightly belong to God. Sovereignty, ultimate authority, love, justice, the decision for death and life. These are not things that belong to man-made stories based on national ethnic myths. These are things that belong to humans who have the image of God in them. So William Cavanaugh reminds us of the migration of the holy and warns against the colonization of our imaginations. And Sarah Coakley, with her very uh, trenchant reminder that becoming like Jesus does not mean becoming like a cringing worm, but instead it means holding our power well in such a way that we make space for others, that we tell stories that do not exclude others, that we refuse to think of only people who look like us and agree with us and feed our egos as being real to us. And instead, we try and organize ourselves and create movements which make space in a gentle way for other people. And it's not very patriotic, and it might not make your nation great again, but it will make you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, friends, welcome back to another debrief episode where we've going to, I don't know, thrash out the stuff that we already had I was talking about Kierkegaard and love. I was talking about William Kavanaugh and the migration of the holy and the rise of the nation state and the city state. I was talking about Sarah Coakley, my favorite theologian, talking about kenosis and gentle space making. And to help deal with all of this stuff, I once again have my friends Natasha Beckles and Chris Marchand to the show. Natasha Beckles is a minister in a London church and Chris is also a minister in a church in Illinois. So welcome, Natasha. Welcome, Chris, to the Tent Theology Debrief episode. All right. Hello. Uh, Chris, what, you know, when you were listening to all this, what was your sort of, um, what are some of the thoughts that were bubbling up when you were listening to these? Yeah, so I, I had a stuff? question, and, and this is where 
you know, I realize that when you give a talk, you're distilling, you know, entire books into a two minute segment. So I had a question about the Kavanaugh, uh, what, what you had to say about Aiden Kavanaugh. Was it Aiden Kavanaugh? William Kavanaugh. William Kavanaugh. Aiden Kavanaugh is a liturgical theologian. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. That's all right. I'll let you two Anglicans uh, right. uh, yeah, deal with that. Right. <laughs> when he talked about migrations of the holy, I got that. Uh -huh. But what I was wondering was, hasn't it always been that way? Like, is, is it really a modern phenomenon? H hasn't, the, hasn't the nation state, even when they were really small, let's just say like a, you know, a little, a little walled in city or even like a slightly larger right. empire, haven't they always wanted our allegiance? I mean, is, is it really a new phenomenon? Because, um, and, and even back, uh, I mean, it's only been in modern times where the separation of the religion from the nationhood that, that's it hasn't it's only been relatively recent in the last few centuries i don't know but maybe what i'm wondering is what was i was was i hearing you correctly am, am i hearing kavanaugh correctly yeah i don't think that it's necessarily a new thing i think he's trying to show that this is a, a mechanism that happens wherever human organizations take root those organizations will some will basically flow to fill the space they'll try and take over more and more it doesn't always have to be that only one institution occupies the space but there does seem to be a history of of uh like i mean even you could go back to the to the idea of kingship in the 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 hebrew scriptures where the king you know samuel says to the people if you want a king, this is what's going to happen. Your king is going to tax you. He's going to take your daughters and marry them. He's going to take your sons and send them to war. Like this is what's going to happen. You're going to, you're going to lose a lot for the sake of having a king like other nations. And I, I guess Kavanaugh would say, well, this is a mechanism that we see happening a lot, that the, the kind of war-making, resource-gathering part of society tends to take over. And that is what has happened in Europe. And that is what has led to what we've got now, where the state has become like a kind of a, a simple space. He describes it as like a, an overly simple space, which has silenced all the other voices. So and I, guess it, I guess he wouldn't say it's unique. He wouldn't pretend that Europe invented it. He's just saying, this is the Christendom we have now. This is what we got. And it's part of that mechanism that we can see happening in history um yeah i don't know that's a there's a good point though i don't but i don't know i don't think he thinks it's unique to europe i just think he's pointing yeah. out that it did happen i think i think maybe my observation is what might be unique of, about the current age that we're living in is things have been desacralized and and so there's no we in america we can't claim any i mean people like to claim christianity as as like the underlying religion but that's absurd um, it, um by the way from a previous episode one of the things that really stood out to me from your interview with brian zond is how he he said that looking back i think america will be the great beacon of secularity that we we think we're a christian nation but we're actually the we are we were the one the trailblazers for a truly unreligious um, um, kind of nationhood. And so I think maybe what I see that is unique is when you remove uh, the divine, when you remove transcendence, all we've got now is the nation state. <laughs> That's all we've got, you know? But what I would very quickly point out, thanks to William Kavanaugh, is that is not actually a decline of the sacred. All that's happening, you still have very sacred objects. You go and try and rip up an American flag <laughs> in front of a, a, a football mm -hmm. stadium. Go on Super Bowl and hold up an American flag and rip it. 
and you tell me that you live in a right. you, you live in a nation that is that is secular and that doesn't have anything sacred yes. our nation has huge amounts of sacred spaces it's just they're not churches but it's still very and this is precisely william kavanaugh's point he's like all of those sacred feelings still exist but they're not focused on the mass or the liturgy or the holy saints days they're focused on the flag and the capitol building like think about on january the 6th the riot and the capitol building it's like a, a de desecration of a sacred space or to flip it on its head it was it was a crusade it was a reclaiming of the sacred space i know but it's still these holy wars that are happening right but they're happening yeah right that's what i mean that's what i mean um i'm saying yes it, for many people it was a, a it was a desecration but to those people doing it they thought they were reclaiming the holy in the name of their righteous war yeah so but all 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 political theologians like me and william Kavanaugh do is we just look at this stuff and we're like who cares about your language of sacred and secular you still have holy objects you still have holy songs you still have holy feelings you still kill people in the name of things you find holy it's just that the, the labels have changed, but the, the, the underlying feeling and motivations are still there. And it's now the state that claims that it's reasonable to kill in behalf of the state rather than the church. But you're still killing human beings on behalf of some human institution that you constructed. So sacred killing has not stopped. It's just not killing in the name of the church anymore. That's the that's the argument. This is where I have a really weird relationship with like the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it's so pro-American and it's such a bizarre mythology to tell like I don't know how much people really really realize how yeah like it exists even in in it's oh they're just superheroes no it's actually of propaganda course. for it's pro-American yeah, yeah, they're propaganda. trying to reframe these 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 stories but they're pro-American propaganda I don't know is this a good place to get Natasha to jump in do you, yeah, what, I think who's it your is. favorite superhero? <laughs> I, I was just thinking Hulk because he's always angry. I love that line <laughs> when he turns around and just says, "I'm always angry." And he's probably the least patriotic of all the superheroes as well. So. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> but I, I, I was just kind of thinking, well, most of the most of Hollywood is like some sort of propaganda about yeah, right? anything. So there's, yeah, yeah. there's, there, there, we're not going to just blame Marvel, <laughs> Disney. <laughs> yeah, but I was, I was thinking just off the back of what Chris was saying, like who is, who is the gods in the kind of secular sacred? Then, you know, who, who is the center of that in terms of the flag is important? Is it the ideology like liberalism, or is it? A place like you, you, you know, you were saying with the kind of storming. I can't believe we're using language around it like that, but you know, this holy war <laughs> that was going on, this storming of of um, you know government buildings. Uh, it, it, what was it? What is the god? What's America's god? Well, America is America's god, right? <laughs> Chris is quietly laughing in the background. Go on. Well, but see, I think, I think. And I, here's what I wonder. I mean, you can maybe claim this as particularly American, but I don't think it is. But we create the new son of God. So whoever is in charge, and if my particular political party is in charge, so you see, you saw the deification of Donald Trump. And the rest of us are going, what? Like, we're, 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 we're standing off. We can't believe it. Um, so he, it's a very temporary God, but the, 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 we've turned the president, the office of the president, which means presidant, by the way, someone who merely presides, we've turned them into a, a son of God, into an emperor. 
So I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Yes, yeah, I would agree though. America itself, the flag, the soldier, the troops, uh, but also the president. What do you think, Natasha? We're, we're both in England. We're both English. So what, what, what in our culture, what do you think the God is of our culture? Because we're not really hyper-nationalistic in quite the same way. It's there. It's there. Yeah, I it is I've there. Been, I, I think I've been more aware of that. And even in the church, it's, you know, there's certain stuff that has gone on over this year that has helped me see that, you know, you touch that relationship between nationalism and the church and you will see a freak out happen, which is just You can always tell what's sacred to a society by what you're not allowed to touch. What you're not allowed to touch and how you respond, people respond when they, you do touch it. I, I mean, the royal family, that's, that's freaking people out a little bit. The whole um, Harry and Meghan scenario just going on and on has, has been one thing. I love the disruptive influence that those two are on the royal family. <laughs> well, it's, and, but there is, I, I look at our kind of media and it's just, you know, listening as to how people are being painted in this yeah. particular, who's being protected or elevated. I think we had a program recently called the Compassionate Duchess and it wasn't about Meghan. So, you know, this juxtaposition that is going on that's being played all the time. I, I don't know, it's, there's something, I, I suppose I'm still putting my finger on it, even though I've grown up in this society all of the time. There, there is very much this image of, it, it, um, it makes out, I kind of put it like, you have these siblings and England is one of the siblings, you know, maybe Canada, Australia is another one, just thinking about these global North and these cousins that have related to each other through empire. And it's almost like America is the badly behaved youngest sibling. You know, Canada is seen as the nice, well-behaved one, but nobody knows. Boring they older have. brother. Yeah. yeah. But, but they've got their stuff. You know, they get into it. <laughs> they've got wow. their stuff. Talk, talk about stories people tell themselves about themselves. Exactly. And then Australia's got, Australia's seen as the weird, strange sibling, but, you know, they've got their, their, their eccentricities and things like that. And England just looks... Um, I say England because it's not, you know, there, there is that kind of ethnic difference. It looks out on all of these things like, oh my gosh, this is just absolutely awful. What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. as if it had nothing to do with it. As if they had nothing to do with it altogether. And, you, you know, you have to be pointing out to people, you do know you like trained South Africa to be, you do know like America was your colony and, and you know, they, they, they learned everything. In fact, they practiced it. You practiced it in the Caribbean and, all of this has come from, and it's like, no, 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 no. This and and that story. That's the thing you can't really touch. Painful. Oh my yeah. gosh, you can't touch. Well, Winston Churchill is another one, right? Like, think people lose their minds when you just tell them quotes that Winston Churchill, like Winston Churchill, was openly racist, and he told he said some awful things about different groups of people. He did, he did, and he also you know, helped England during the Second World War. He did. And people did. are like, how can you possibly say Winston Churchill was a racist? And like, well, he was. But this is also part of your story, but you can't touch it. You can't admit that he had any flaws, right? Because of the English reverence And, and, for this and that's the bit that I, you know, particularly from a Christian perspective is problematic because in, in, in the sense that, you know, we read the Bible and they're full of people who are flawed. You know, you have to be reminding people that, you know, Abraham, father of the nation. Yes, he also pimped his wife. Yes. You know, and <laughs> hello. And, and people are like, 
where where is that? where yeah, right, there it is babe. It's, it's right there and in terms of this there's this something about this perfectionism of people that it makes Churchill more human and real and that, that this is a more rounded aspect of who these people are uh, you know, it's when it's like people are like, oh, Gandhi. And, and it's like, if you know something about Gandhi's background, it's not flawless. They, you know, there's racism in Gandhi's perspective. They, there's some misogyny there that is, is just not quite cool, would not be cool now. But people want to focus on one. And, and actually, that's not loving someone. If you really love someone, a bit like a tree, you love the bit above and you love the roots below. And you 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 see all of that and that's and god sees all of that and as church we're supposed to be holistic in that sense but we seem to just want to talk about these good bits and want to kill people because they they point out that this person was not a god you know it's this pedestalizing people and it's not good for us and it's not good for them that you put anybody in a pedestal it's very it's a long way to fall it's just disappointing you're it, whoever trusts in it you're you're building on sand basically you said something in the last week's uh, episode that uh, really that struck with me i'm not going to say it correctly you're, you'll have to put it I'm, you'll have to tell me what exactly how you said it the idea was that like when you sort of don't let the bad stuff of your own group come to light it's like you are thinking that the cross isn't big enough to hold all your sins yeah it's that if you we should be seeing these moments of recognizing our brokenness to your cross gets bigger you know god loves you still yeah the cross just gets bigger it gets bigger and and when and i and i can remember talking about this with a friend and realizing that the reflection is that actually the most humble people you know those people who who've been through all of this crazy and know that they're sinners become humble people because your cross is so big it may it, you you realize how much god has done for you but we seem to be in this kind of and our church facilitates it not wanting to have that conversation and take people deeper into that space of repentance with god like and i'm like if we don't know how to do that repentance we, we we're in some serious problems because we're supposed to be the hope of the world oh dear <laughs> I don't, I don't know how uh, Anglican churches work in the U.S. or Episcopalian churches. That Chris will tell us a bit about that. But I know that in the U.K., Natasha, you are being ordained into a church which part of its identity is that they are basically one of the facilitators of English identity. They're like the museum curators of the Museum of Englishness in some ways, right? And so that part of that is like there's a real problem when priests need to tell the truth and be prophetic to their congregations because the congregations quite often think, why are you telling us bad things about ourselves? You're supposed to be the Church of England. And it's a real problem. It is, it is. It's one of those conversations you have to have with God and just be like, Daddy, why me? <laughs> In terms of um, just under- coming to terms with it. But I think God wants his church. And at the end of the day, he wants his church and he wants it presented in the way that he wants it presented and we're going to have to have those difficult conversations with ourselves because at the end of the line if we're not working for him i don't know who we're working for if if not us who who would do it right yeah chris is that something that happens in in america how does the your church culture does it sort of see itself as preserving some kind of wing of the state in terms of keeping a story going or not the state 
Episcopalianism, Anglicanism is not linked to the state in that same sense. What, what is funny though is uh, to carry with us as Anglicans in America, uh, we're carrying on this tradition. And so one of my concerns is when we bring people into worship or we, we're, we're catechizing them in the church is we frame it as, oh, this grand tradition we're inviting you into, as opposed to hey, come follow in the way of right. Jesus. So sometimes the pomposity, the tradition can get in the way of, it, it's, mm -hmm. it can be similar in that sense. Because people look at us as Anglicans and they go, wait, who are you again? What's an Anglican? Is that, is that a Christian? And like, oh yes, it's a Christian. It just means church of England. Like there's always these layers to it. So no one really cares that we're Anglican. <laughs> so if we spend all this time speaking of our great tradition, when really we should just be pointing them to Jesus. Like it's like, it's yeah, they're, they're not caught up in here. No, no one's right. impressed by us in America. <laughs> <laughs> no one's impressed. I'm impressed by you, Chris. Um, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by the Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank it's beautiful you. just to even hear it and reflect <laughs> on it because there is this history as to how, you know, Episcopalian came about in a, a nation that was built on something else at that point and wanted to be separate. And, and there is that, I mean, it, it's part of English heritage as to why the Episcopalians aren't part of the state because there was so much violence going on here that everybody was like, hell no, we're not going to have this group of people, uh, you know, running things because we're that violent. So it's maybe that's what the church has also got to take on, that is violence and the violence that we're seeing in all of the, these particular um, ex-colonial um, relatives, cousins, however you want to describe it, is because of the violence that is it's so intrinsic to, you know, the church itself. And I, I wanted to bring that out because it was interesting that you were saying that, you know, this president, this Caesar, and that is, therein lies the issue. We've got this witness of this Caesar coming right through our Roman roots, uh, our Greco-Roman roots. And I can't remember the name of the film. There's a film about a guy who he's dying and he's got this you know, great brain, whatever, he's an IT person. And they more or less, it's one of those transhumanist type films where they, they transfer his brain onto this um, kind of cyber system. And that's how he continues to live after his body dies. Bit scary, but in that kind of way, I feel like Rome and its violence has just transitioned in, into our Christian right. narrative. Encoded, yeah. Encoded. And so this is why we've got, you know, I went to Rome and you're seeing Christ the Caesar. And I'm like, well, where did he come from? And you, I get it from a, you know, a community that's trying to visually communicate who Jesus was as this person who's above all. But actually, Rome, despite what Augustine was talking about in City of God, that, you know, all of these things, this dross will fall away, but your Christian faith is supposed to stay together. But somehow we've carried forward this meme. <laughs> and it, yeah, we've learned, we've transmitted some of the wrong lessons, I think. Or the violence, the violence yeah. is still there, and 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 that it, it's in complete juxtaposition to who Jesus is coming in on a donkey, and I, we just need to, we we do need to have a sit down and a chat about that, all of us. As or we could start family. a podcast. We could start a podcast that's been running for a year on this. <laughs> we could do that as well. 
100%. Why is it that this this spectra is just so much and it and ultimately is you know it's an american culture as to what they, they they're looking for when the people are voting for a president they actually want a caesar they want somebody they want, caesar. Ha- they want a bully they want that's what they want and it's like the well you had obama but still you know there will be a lot of critique that you know certain places still continue to be these violent spaces and we just dressed it a different way people would still critique even well, Obama killed more. He dropped more drone bombs on anybody that Trump ever did. Yeah. You know? Trump was too busy dropping them just on I know, Twitter. I know. I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not making a... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you're, you're, our powerful leaders, our powerful leaders of a country, of countries built on war, endless war, endless killing of, of foreigners, endless killing of people. Like, it's just... Every leader always does it all the time. And there's something about this pattern of life that we just keep replicating and then every nation does it it's just that the i'm particularly interested in the one the ones who christianize it who celebrate it you know those are the ones that make me annoyed particularly it's not that i think america or whatever is worse than everyone i just think it it's celebrating it in a way that i find offensive and then the english as well the english celebration of english empire the christian celebration of english empire as if it was like a the christianizing sort of light to the world rather than the enslaved you know there's lots of bad stuff happening and yet you're you're told that you're somehow not allowed to mention that to christians you know and yeah i feel like it's it's almost like we're so fragile we can't allow that that to be also part of our story because our cross is too small i think what did you think about the love i can't possibly get away with a with a debrief in which i mentioned soren kierkegaard in my uh talk and and not talk about it in the debrief so i contrasted like for like love well i didn't i mean i'm using kierkegaard with unlike for unlike love so like for like love is what he would say is erotic it's this kind of based on passion and you're you're attracted to someone and it's basically when it comes down to is people group together it's like the affinity that we were talking about last week where people group together with people who are as much like them as possible and you it's almost like an infatuation with each other. You're obsessed with the other person. And, that, and that's where patriotic love comes from, really. It's that kind of feeling-based, passionate-based, based on that we share something in common. And one of the things that Kierkegaard points out, he's like, that's basically just self-love because you're just trying to group with people who essentially are as much like you as possible. And the ultimate horizon of that is you, right? Which is what leads to the kind of violence and stuff we've been talking about that kind of, you know, it's, it isn't based on um, any regard for, for what, for another person that, that might not have anything to do with you. It's only based on what you're going to get out of it all the time. So then he contrasts that with agape, which is, which is the kind of way that God loves humans because humans don't look like God and he loves us anyway. Right. So it's, it's unlike for unlike love. And that's what that's what Kierkegaard is trying to build some kind of social, um, not contract, but like social imagination based on agape love, not based on erotic love. If that makes sense, it does make sense. I was I had to find my notes just to think back on it. But I did throw you. I did throw this. I just kind of chucked well, you guys into the deep end, the Kierkegaard deep end. But. Well, because it was because it just sounds so narcissistic, doesn't it? And that was that was what struck me just reflecting on it that actually there is this kind of desire for the self 
that you know it's just God making and all of that kind of but so I could I really got that I could resonate with that kind of perspective and when you talk about it as I don't know it just sounded you know the self-love stuff just turned in on itself really and um not not yeah and caught up and the ability you know when it, when I think of about C.S. Lewis talking about Eros love and it's how much it's spinning and, and just a just concerned with itself and has no regard for the impact that its behavior has on all those around it all the responsibilities that it has and I and I could really resonate with that as so yeah I I found that quite helpful uh, as a, a way of looking at it and the point at which and maybe in the same way that what what develops eros love or hopefully grows it in some sort of way is the fact that it ends up with a responsibility be that a child or the responsibility of being well, that's interesting eros love produces new people perhaps which then start to not they might not always look like you <laughs> yeah and they they act like you or sometimes they act like you and you don't like it yeah, and right. <laughs> but yeah. in terms of and that and there's a kind of reflection opportunity that's there yeah. in in that relationship that helps people to look and see that actually are we is this what we wanted with our ideals as a kind of patreon patriotic mm -hmm. or national this is this was our big ide ideal of the american dream or you know these mm -hmm. constitutional thoughts but what does it look like manifest and are we able to get on board with that and i would say with america is that unfortunately for too long they've been happy to get on board with some of the kind of products of stuff that these these great ideals that just didn't manifest it live up to the the kind of ideals that they had and it's because of mm. the dissonance that's there you know you know in the founding fathers all of this stuff that you know some of these people have gotten like 900 strong um, work camps, labor camps, slave camps going on and still having conversations. I'm talking Jefferson yeah. about, you know, about being the free. equality of all people. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, don't, at what point did you wake up and go, uh, <laughs> this, this doesn't manifest. I'm writing about this stuff, justifying it in different ways and actually talking about it in this way. And it, it's just interesting. It's just interesting. Well, that, our capacity for self delusion, like to tell these narratives, back to um, Benedict Arnold from the previous talk, but to tell these narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves and they're really strong, like they really shape, not only are they sort of powerful, they're, they're the most powerful stories that are in our lives quite often, these things. And that's the kind of thing that William Kavanaugh would look at. He's like, this story, these the national founding myths, you know, that Americans have or the British empire that the British people have, like, they're really powerful. They're, they've become more powerful than any other story. They've why? sort of taken over the space. Yeah. Why? And why is that? Is there? Because I think for in the UK, you know, I, I don't know it, it, the the kind of decline of working class communities in the sense that they're being the salt of the earth and them having jobs and the honor of your work in your hands and all of that stuff has gone. And, and so there's something of the, a kind of confidence that maybe Britain had previously that would have been linked to empire, but also was grounded in the solid fact that, you know, you had workers unions that would 
challenge the abuses that were going on and and had some sort of gravitas now and all of that has gone and it's almost like you've got this generation of um people you know who only you know are happy to turn up because they heard of a black lives matter <laughs> um, march going on in london to defend the churchill but you know they've not been well served by you know recent leadership at all you know they've lost their kind of job security all of that and i imagine that's happened in the states as well because this is what globalization and capitalism has done it's stripping people of the dignity of their work and um you know we we've got a gig economy that people are just holding together on and sometimes you know we've got access to more material stuff but less honor of ourselves in that and that means that this narrative around patriotism nationalism actually becomes more and more critical well and also so Kavanaugh and others will make the point that when we're talking about the rise of the Anglo-European mindset it's also the rise of capitalism these aren't separate so the American identity for example is intrinsically capitalistic as well and also don't forget that that capitalism was invented in Scotland <laughs> and England, right? Like, so the, the 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 Protestant kind of capitalist way of thinking, which is deep intertwined into the Anglo-American way of thinking, produces this language of the human resource, that humans are resources, and that when they are used up, we leave them aside, they're discarded. We treat a human like we would treat a, you know, a, a mine or a battery or a well. And once it's no longer useful, it's discarded. And so what our society has done is our own you know, stories we tell ourselves about ourselves have actually just created a, just generations of discarded people now who are no longer useful. And then they're the, they're, they're the rootless ones who are easily brought, brought into other stories, manipulated and, and used very, very easily. And we see this all the time. Chris, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, you know, this strikes me, um, what you're talking about with people being used as resources. A thought that struck me as you were giving your talk was that I'm reconciling with the idea of cities themselves being an evil place. <laughs> like, like, so there's always this push and pull with cities. I mean, uh, uh, Natasha, you live in one of the most important cities of the world. Um, I have a friend that moved to New York to because, because it was so important. Like there's culture there and there's, oh, there's so many great places to eat. And so there's this draw on this pull to cities. But it's interesting to think of cities as being this place of accumulating a wealth of human bodies to, to, to produce the capital needed uh, so, that, so that these huge, amazing high rises can be built. Um, huge factories can be sustained. And uh, it, and like in seminary, you know, there is this always cliche, you know, uh, life began in a garden, but it ends in a city. Um, but God's God's holy city in the new heavens and the new earth, it looks different than these cities we've created for ourselves. So, I mean, what I'm what I'm trying to contemplate is with this this agape type love, where we give, where we are, we are able to give self giving love to each other. Does it occur in these massive massive metropolises that we've built, or is it small? You know, that that's something I'm pondering because. I, I can kind of only deal with my with my small family circles, like you know the 150 people. Yes, the 150 people that I can work within. 
Um, but I mean, I think you could probably do that within a city, but- uh, Well, cities are interesting. Cities are different. We, we tend to think of like uh, human groups. We, we think individual, then family, then neighborhood, then city, then region, then country. We think as if it's concentric circles ever expanding outwards. But the thing is, cities are different animals than countries. Like a city is very sort of real and physical in a way, for example, that a country is not, right? A city is way less dependent on flags. Just think about that. Like there's no flag of a city. There's no song to a city. There's no like ideas that are trying to bind people. There's the actual buildings and the roads, right? And I feel like cities are, have a different kind of animal in that they are chaotic collections. They're basically benignly anarchic collections of communities. Nobody can really run a city. They, at their best, actually, a city can be a, a, a really good example of agape love because there's people living side by side. Like if I move to London, <laughs> Natasha is my neighbor. <laughs> And Natasha does not look like me or sound like me. And yet I love her. I have to love her. I have to live at peace with her. Right. It's like a really good example of agape love. I think in cities that they are forced to get along with each other, even though there are people that don't all speak the same language or sound the same or eat the same food. Right. So I am a pretty pro city actually in lots of ways and when they when they go wrong is when they try and be city states or when they try and expel a people from them who don't look like them and sound like them as much as possible when they try and micromanage or control the space then it becomes like toxic or they relegate certain people to certain sections of that city (laughs) yeah right right exactly i think people in cities live in the same 150 people that they can because you know it's just overlaid over each other and and it it, it, you there there is a way that you can live in the city and be completely eros eros love and there is a way that you can be agape love i think and maybe we need to articulate that better as to how you do that life together friends thank you for coming to to my tent thank you for joining me once again in this conversation i really enjoyed it uh, I really thank Natasha Beckles for joining us. I thank Chris Marchand for joining us. And uh, I look forward to seeing both of you sometime in the future. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.